Good morning. This hearing in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Today we will consider the nominations of five highly qualified individuals for positions of importance and sensitivity for America's interests at home and abroad. Richard Riley to be ambassador to Somalia. Mark Toner to be ambassador to Liberia. David White to be deputy director of the Peace Corps. Ambassador Harold Mustafa Garg to be ambassador to Egypt and Paul Martin to be Inspector General at USAID. Let me express my thanks on behalf of the committee to you, our nominees, for your dedicated public service and for being here today. And also, thank you to your families. I know they share in the celebration of this moment just as they share in the challenges of your service. A grateful nation thanks you all. Before I introduce our nominees, I'll give a few words about what it means to fill these posts. And I'll turn that over to Mr. Young. In Washington and around the world, including some of the most diplomatically delicate places, critical US posts remain empty. They sit empty at a time when democracy, freedom, and the rule of law and human rights are under assault by extremists and authoritarians. Currently, we have a backlog of at least 23 nominees pending on the Senate floor and many more in committee. Many of those nominees are career foreign service officers who have served in both Republican and Democratic administrations. In the coming weeks and months, we will inevitably add to that list. To give you a sense of the urgency of this backlog today, as conflict engulfs the Middle East, the United States currently does not have confirmed ambassadors in Lebanon, in Egypt, and in Israel. USAID remains without an assistant administrator for the Middle East. The State Department's coordinator for counterterrorism still awaits confirmation. This is unacceptable. The United States cannot expect to lead the free world if the United States does not even have someone in the room. If we seek to build lasting peace around the world, then we need talented and experienced public servants like those with us here today on the job as quickly as possible. In these difficult times, we must take action to expeditiously advance nominees for all of our critical national security posts. I'll now introduce the nominees, after which I'll proceed to opening statements from Senator Young and then testimonies from the nominees. Richard Riley currently serves as Minister Counselor for Economic Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa, Canada. He is nominated to be our next ambassador to Somalia, a country confronting many challenges, but one which also has made fragile progress over the last decade. Mark Toner most recently served as the Minister Counselor for Public Diplomacy at the U.S. Embassy in Paris. Mr. Toner also serves as Peace Corps volunteer in Liberia, has also served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Liberia, where he's nominated to be our next ambassador. David White currently serves as Special Assistant to the President in the White House Office of Presidential Personnel. He has served on the National Security Council, where he facilitated government-wide efforts to resettle nearly 90,000 Afghan allies. He is nominated to be the next Deputy Director of the Peace Corps. Ambassador Erdo Mustafa Garg has served as a U.S. Ambassador to Bulgaria and was previously the Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Portugal. She grew up in North Dakota and speaks Kurdish, Arabic, Farsi, Greek, Hindi, Bulgarian, Portuguese, and I'm sure English. Ambassador Garg is nominated to be our next ambassador to Egypt, a critical post in today's turbulent 
Middle East. And finally, we will consider Paul Martin, a lifelong public servant who has served as the Inspector General for NASA since 2009. He nominated to be the next Inspector General at the United States Agency for International Development. Congratulations again on your nominations, and thank you for joining us today and your service to the nation. With that, let me turn things over to Senator Young for his opening remarks. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, first, I want to thank all of you. I want to thank you for your service. I want to thank your families uh, for being here for this important hearing. The sacrifices you make by accepting these posts are enormous, I know, and, and please know that we are grateful for your continued service. Today's hearing comes at a time of great uncertainty and conflict throughout the world. These conflicts are going to have profound impacts on the posts you'll, you'll, you'll take if confirmed. In the Sahel and, and sub-Saharan regions of Africa, the danger that is posed by terrorist groups continues to rise. While compounded by democratic backsliding, with our help, our allies continue to combat this threat and we must continue to support them to defeat terrorism at its source. Of course, the conflict in Israel is on the minds of everyone in this room. Many of the nominees here today will have to work with their counterparts to ensure this conflict doesn't grow to include other actors. I hope that I can count on all of you to continue to support our ally Israel wherever appropriate. It's critical that we continue to prioritize humanitarian assistance throughout the world. Our aid ha has to continue to flow to those it's intended to reach and stay out of the hands of those who seek to abuse it. Especially now, we must work to make sure that our programs continue to be effective in promoting American values. The positions you're nominated to fill are some of the most critical we have in supporting U.S. interests abroad. If confirmed, it will be up to all of you to continue to support those interests. The geopolitical landscape of today is one of increasing uncertainty, and I'm confident that all of you are up to that challenge. With that, I once again thank our nominees for being here today. I look forward to our discussion. Chairman? All nominees will now be offered the opportunity to provide their testimony. We ask them to be each of you to be as brief and concise as possible to summarize your statement within five minutes. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. And we will start with Mr. Riley. Welcome. Good morning, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member, Senator Young, and distinguished members of the committee. I'm honored to come before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the next United States Ambassador to the Federal Republic of Somalia. I am deeply grateful to the President and Secretary Blinken for their confidence in me. My wonderful wife of 37 years, Cheryl Wong, my sister and brother Lisa Schwartz and Sean Riley and their families are all watching online. I'm also very proud that my beloved daughter, Eden Riley, is here with me today. I want to thank all my family for their love and support. Mr. Chairman, I've been privileged to have served in the U.S. Foreign Service for 31 years. I joined in 1986 and have faithfully served in 12 countries in Asia, Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East including two tours in Iraq, three, in, three tours in Afghanistan, Assistant Chief of Mission in Kabul, Deputy Chief of Mission in Yemen, and last year's Consul General in one of our most remote and dangerous posts, the U.S. Consulate General in Peshawar, Cairo, Pakhtunkhwa. 
I volunteered for these assignments because I always wanted to serve where our nation's vital interests are most at stake. I believe my extensive experience, including senior leadership positions in four Muslim-majority countries and four war zones, has allowed me to work very successfully with our U.S. military, USAID, and other interagency colleagues to fight against terrorist threats worldwide. Our work together in all these countries also strengthened good governance, supported democracy, and brought much-needed humanitarian relief to millions of people. I believe my three decades of experience has prepared me well to lead our extraordinary interagency team in Somalia today. Mr. Chairman, Somalia is making progress on its long road to recovery from state collapse. Since the May 2022 election of President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, we have seen renewed commitment on the part of Somali authorities and the Somali people to rid themselves of al-Shabaab and their extreme ideology. Local communities supported by the Somali government, African Union military forces, and other international partners, including, of course, the United States, have retaken more territory in the last 14 months than in the previous several years combined. Key transportation corridors have reopened, allowing for free movement of goods and services and economic revitalization. However, al-Shabaab remains a resilient and capable adversary. Recent setbacks against the group have led the federal government to request a pause in the ongoing drawdown of African Union forces, scheduled to withdraw completely by the end of next year. Sustainable gains require the expansion of governance, service delivery, and political reconciliation. Fundamental questions related to federal structures and authorities and the Constitution must be addressed. Economic growth is also imperative to expand employment opportunities for the two-thirds of Somalis who are under the age of 30. Improved oversight of the banking sector, government revenue generation, public sector financial management are vital for the government to access international financial institutions for lending, uh, for infrastructure development and poverty reduction and promote foreign direct investment. We are encouraged that the government in Mogadishu agrees these are top priorities and is taking action to address them. If confirmed, I am committed to supporting its efforts to advance good governance and institution building. The United States has a stake in Somalia's success. We have a shared interest in eliminating al-Shabaab and ISIS from Somalia, which threaten U.S. persons and interests throughout East Africa. A stable democratic Somalia would enable the return of hundreds of thousands of refugees requiring international assistance. There are strong connections between our peoples with hundreds of thousands of Somali Americans in communities across the U.S., many of whom returned to Somalia in recent years to help rebuild and pursue economic opportunities. Mr. Chairman, the security challenges in Mogadishu remain significant. I have dedicated much of my career to advancing U.S. interest in countries under hazardous conditions and have always made the safety, security, and morale of my staff, U.S. personnel, and Americans my top priority. If confirmed, I am committed to ensure appropriate safeguards are in place to enable our embassy to accomplish our mission safely and effectively. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, members of the committee, I thank you for this opportunity to appear before you. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Riley and Mr. Toner. Uh, Chairman Merkley, uh, Ranking Member Young, other members of the committee, <clears throat> thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as the next U.S. Ambassador to Li the Republic of Liberia. I'm grateful for the trust and confidence the President and Secretary Blinken have placed in me with this nomination and look forward to work closely with the members of this committee and with your staffs to promote and protect U.S. interests in Liberia.
I'd like to begin uh, by acknowledging my family, my friends, my colleagues, uh, all who helped get me here. Uh, that includes my parents, uh, both members of the greatest generation, my siblings, all five of them, my wonderful daughters, all four of them, uh, my large extended family, but most importantly of all, my wife, uh, Mimi, who's here with me today. Uh, she's never wavered in her support and her love through all the ups and downs of foreign service life. I have a strong personal connection, as you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, uh, with Liberia, having served there as a Peace Corps volunteer in the late 80s. It was a formative experience that kindled my desire to become a Foreign Service officer. During that time, I had the privilege to work alongside many dedicated Liberian health professionals, people who showed up every day to work under difficult circumstances without any guarantee of a regular paycheck. These are the people who continue to inspire me through their commitment, their courage, and their determination. If confirmed, it would be an honor to return now as the next ambassador, U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Liberia, with which the United States shares a special bond uh, rooted in our deep historical ties and preserved through our shared commitment to democracy, human rights, health security, economic prosperity, and regional stability. Liberia is also a country shaped by years of conflict, terror, disease, and hardship. It speaks to the Liberian people's resilience when, in 2017, the country achieved a significant milestone by carrying out the first peaceful transition of power between two elected presidents in over 70 years. The next, that next, or the next test is now underway as Liberians cast their ballots just last week to elect the next president. President Weah and his challengers pledged to hold an election that is peaceful, free, and fair. And we, the United States, and our partners are doing everything in our power to hold them accountable for delivering on that commitment. The United States is the largest bilateral donor to Liberia with more than $5 billion in bilateral assistance since 2003. That assistance has paid concrete dividends in the economic, education, security, and public health sectors. But that progress has also been heavily eroded by growing lawlessness and corruption within the current administration. If confirmed, I will lead our embassy's efforts to hold corrupt government officials accountable and keep Liberia on a path to self-reliance so that ordinary Liberians can see the benefits of private sector growth and accountable government. And the country remains the United States' most steadfast partner in Africa. If confirmed, my team and I will also work to increase investment opportunities for US businesses and to promote inclusive economic development focused on job creation, providing much needed opportunities for a population in which the median age is 19 and a half years. But the onus ultimately is on Liberia's political leaders to increase transparency and tackle corruption seriously, as both are integral to establishing the conditions necessary to attract responsible long-term foreign investment. We must apply the same approach to human rights as Liberia's justice sector works to address reported cases of gender-based violence, some of the worst forms of child labor and human trafficking, as well as the legacy of war crimes. These abuses must be confronted for their own sake, as well as to ensure a broader system of accountability, good governance, and rule of law. If confirmed, I look forward to building on the outstanding work the previous ambassador and his excellent team have done to assist with the many challenges facing Liberia I'm optimistic the United States can work with its partners in the Liberian government and the people to help strengthen their democracy and secure a brighter, more prosperous future for the next generation of Liberians. Mr. Chairman, I thank you 
uh, for the opportunity to appear before you and the other members of the committee, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Toner, and I'm, I'm sure your experience in the Peace Corps in Liberia will be very significant and in terms of the foundation for understanding the issues in Liberia. And speaking of the Peace Corps, we now have Mr. David White, nominated to be Deputy Director of the Peace Corps. Welcome. Thank you. Chairman Merkley, Ranking Member Young, and esteemed members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I want to begin by thanking President Biden for the honor and privilege of being nominated to serve as Deputy Director of the Peace Corps. I also want to thank Director Carol Spahn for her leadership of the agency and her confidence and support throughout this process. I'm also deeply grateful to the thousands of Peace Corps volunteers around the world for their service, as well as the dedicated career staff who bring their best each day in support of those volunteers. I would not be here without my family. I owe an enormous debt of gratitude to my parents, David and Kathy White, for their support, as well as to my wife, Dana McKinney White, for her partnership and so much more. I also want to acknowledge my mother, my brother Dan, and my in-laws Fred and Ivy McKinney, and friends and colleagues who are in the audience today as well, and I appreciate their support. The Peace Corps represents some, if not all, of the best virtues in this society. It stands for everything that America has ever stood for. It stands for everything we believe in and hope to achieve in the world. Those words by Sergeant Shriver, the first director of the Peace Corps, remain as true today as they were then. The Peace Corps' commitment to public service is one that I've long admired and sought to emulate in my own career. I'm a proud third-generation military veteran, so perhaps it's no surprise that at the age of 17, I began my career in public service as a West Point cadet. It was there that I deepened my desire to serve something greater than myself, and it's where I learned the values of duty, honor, country. After graduating from the academy, I went on to serve as a cavalry officer in the U.S. Army. I had the immense privilege of leading women and men in combat in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Without a doubt, my combat deployment was one of the most formative leadership tests of my career. Each day, I faced new challenges spurred by life in a combat zone. Balancing our mission to establish and safeguard a fragile peace with the safety and well-being of my soldiers. My service in Afghanistan cemented my belief that despite our differences, be they language, culture, or beliefs, all people yearn for the same basic freedoms, that is, safety and security, economic opportunity, and education for their children, and the right to exercise their faith free from persecution. Of course, this recognition of our common principles is not unique to my service in Afghanistan. As Peace Corps volunteers know firsthand, effective service requires a commitment to move past our differences and reach common ground to achieve a lasting impact. This expanded worldview and greater mutual understanding benefits not only individual volunteers and their host communities, it benefits all Americans. Over the last 62 years, nearly a quarter of a million volunteers have partnered with local communities on development projects that have substantially improved countless lives. Their work is evidence of the great importance of pursuing peace and friendship around the world. Whether it be building relationships with remote rural communities or partnering to recover from setbacks caused by COVID-19, the Peace Corps' work is as crucial as ever to meet the challenges of the day and prove the value of American leadership in the world. If confirmed, I will work tirelessly with Director Spahn and my colleagues to achieve the Peace Corps' strategic goals of strengthening local capacity, sharing America with the world, and bringing the world back home. 
In doing so, we have to recognize that there's more that we can and must do. We must do more to reimagine our approach to service so that volunteers and host communities alike are best matched to make the most lasting impact. We must do more to build a Peace Corps that draws on the rich skills and experiences of its dedicated staff and volunteers to strive for equity and inclusion throughout our work. And finally, we must do more to enhance the quality of our systems that support volunteers and deliver consistently on the health, safety, and service commitments we make in each partnership. In closing, I am deeply grateful for your consideration and support of my nomination. If confirmed, I pledge to lead with integrity, compassion, and an unwavering commitment to the Peace Corps' mission to promote world peace. Let us extend America's hand in friendship to show our partners, both old and new, that we are committed to tackling the world's toughest problems together. Thank you, and I look forward to any questions that you may have. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. White. And we'll turn from the uh, Peace Corps uh, to um, the nomination of Ambassador Mustafa Garg to be ambassador in Egypt. Welcome. Chairman Merkley, Ranking Member Young, distinguished members of the committee, I am humbled to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as ambassador to the Arab Republic of Egypt. I am grateful to the President and to the Secretary for the confidence they have placed in me to undertake this role. I have tremendous respect for this committee and I have seen firsthand your strong commitment to advancing our national interests and if confirmed, I look forward to continuing to work closely with you. My family and I came to the United States as refugees from the Kurdistan region of Iraq when I was three. We had little more than the shirts on our backs and hopes and dreams. My parents sacrificed so much for me and my siblings to be able to pursue that American dream. That is why I am particularly honored to appear before this committee as the first American ambassador of Kurdish descent. The approach of thinking big and maintaining optimism are what have shaped me into the person that I am today and, if confirmed, will guide my vision in Egypt. Family is extremely important to me, and I am blessed to have the love and support of so many family members here with me today. My husband, Ravnish, our two daughters, my parents, my three brothers, my sister-in-law, my niece, and, of course, friends and mentors. It is with great pride that I have dedicated 25 years to public service, much of this in the Middle East. I studied Arabic in Jordan, worked in the UAE, Lebanon, and Iraq, and helped advance US priorities in the Middle East at the White House under both Republican and Democratic administrations. If confirmed, I look forward to bringing that experience to this important role in Egypt. Senators, the remarks I had prepared to deliver earlier this month are different than the remarks I am delivering today. The unprecedented scale of brutality unleashed by Hamas on October 7 has led to an escalation with mounting deaths of Israeli and Palestinian civilians and over 30 nationalities still searching for or mourning the loss of loved ones. This is truly a tragedy. Egyptians like to refer to their country as Um al-Dunya, the mother of the world. 
we are witnessing in real time Egypt's vital role as we strive to protect American citizens, secure the immediate and unconditional release of hostages, prevent harm to civilians, and prevent the conflict from spreading. We are partnering with Egypt to address urgent humanitarian needs in Gaza and enable the safe passage of Americans and those who are at immediate risk through the Rafah crossing. Equally important is the U.S.-Egypt partnership on an affirmative vision for a Middle East region focused on peace and security, negotiating a two-state solution, and furthering regional integration. Bilateral security cooperation with Egypt, underwritten by FMF assistance for over four decades, is an investment in self-reliant, capable, and accountable Egyptian armed forces aligned with U.S. priorities and values. If confirmed, I will implement this cooperation while continuously reflecting that the U.S.-Egypt relationship will be strongest with tangible and lasting progress on protecting human rights and respect for fundamental freedoms. In particular, further releases of political prisoners and reforms to pre-trial detention. I pledge to consistently raise these important concerns with the government of Egypt and to prioritize engagement with Egyptian civil society. The U.S.-Egypt partnership is multifaceted and constantly adapting to meet present challenges. Today, Egypt is the world's largest wheat importers on the front lines of the global repercussions of Putin's brutal aggression. Egypt and the United States have stood together in support for Ukraine. And from my service as ambassador to Bulgaria, I know well how vital our partnerships are to address Russia's destabilizing role. The U.S. Embassy in Cairo is among the largest in the world, with a talented and dedicated team of American and local staff that, if confirmed, I would be proud to leave, to lead. And thank you to the staff for their 24-7 work right now. Thank you to them and thank you to their families. The safety and security of the embassy team and U.S. citizens in Egypt, if confirmed, will always be my foremost priority. Thank you again for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Ambassador. And we are now going to turn uh, to uh, Mr. Martin. And Mr. Martin is being nominated to be the Inspector General of AID, the Agency for International Development. Welcome. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Young, and members of the committee. I'm honored to be nominated to serve as Inspector General for the United States Agency for International Development. If confirmed, I commit to working closely with this committee to provide timely and comprehensive information related to the programs and operations of USAID and the other agencies under the OIG's oversight mandate. At the outset, I would like to recognize my family for their love and support. My wife, Rebecca Liu, and our daughters, Anna, Emily, and Grace. I also want to express deep appreciation to my colleagues at the NASA Office of Inspector General, whom I've had the pleasure of working with for the past 14 years. I've dedicated the bulk of my professional life to public service at three important government agencies. The United States Sentencing Commission, the Department of Justice Office of the Inspector General, and now NASA OIG. 
And since late March 2020, I've also served as Vice Chair of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, an entity created by Congress to support independent oversight of the $5 trillion in emergency pandemic federal relief. As the committee considers my nomination, I am energized by the prospect of working with, learning from, and helping lead USAID OIG's dedicated staff located across five continents as the office works to safeguard the integrity and effectiveness of the U.S. government's international development and global humanitarian assistance efforts. If confirmed, I would look to increase the OIG's oversight of the tens of billions of dollars in assistance provided by USAID to Ukraine since the onset of Russia's invasion in February 22. Congress and the American public deserve to know that the OIG is laser focused on ensuring that USAID programs in Ukraine are working as intended and are not compromised by corruption. Similarly, the OIG must continue rigorous oversight of U.S. foreign assistance programs in many other vulnerable parts of the world through its audits, inspections, and investigations. And this would include investigations into misuse of USAID funds programmed through non-government organizations and the United Nations. A high priority would be oversight of USAID programs in Gaza and the West Bank, particularly any allegations that U.S. provided humanitarian assistance has been diverted to terrorist organizations. Finally, the OIG must maintain a cooperative yet independent working relationship with USAID leadership while building a professional environment at the OIG that attracts and retains talented employees who have a heart for the office's oversight mission. I am thankful for and humbled by this nomination and the opportunity, if confirmed, to serve alongside the USAID OIG team to strengthen America's foreign assistance programs around the globe. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Martin. We all know how important the role of inspector generals are, as you <coughs> noted, to make sure that the aid gets where it needs to go and uh, does not uh, feed any form of uh, corruption. Thank you. Before we start our series of five-minute rounds, I have a few questions that speak to the importance that this committee places on responsiveness by all officials in the executive branch and that we will expect and will be seeking from you. And I would ask each of you to provide just a yes or no answer. And so I'll pose the question and just have each of you respond to it. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes, Senator. Yes. 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 Thank you. Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. Yes, Senator. Yes. Yes, sir. Indeed. Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. 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 Yes, sir. Yes. Do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 I will. As you imagined, uh, yes is the answer we were hoping <laughs> promptly to you. So uh, thank you very much. We're now going to start our, our five-minute round of questions. 
Uh, I'm hoping to get a question into each of you during my five minutes, which means your answer to complicated things has to be pretty brief, uh, a challenge. Um, but here, here we go. Uh, starting with uh, you, Mr. Riley. Somalia has not held a one-person, one-vote election. Its government institutions are considered weak and sometimes corrupt. The relationship between the federal government and the states remains complicated. If confirmed, how do you intend to help Somalia develop democratic, accountable, transparent, and efficient institutions? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your question. Um, I would uh, focus on the three mutually reinforcing goals that we have with our U.S. policy currently in Somalia. And if I am confirmed, I will certainly continue uh, to push uh, for achievement of those three goals. Uh, the first is building security. Uh, that has to happen. It's continuing to happen as we continue to support uh, in a number of ways, which I can elaborate later, uh, as we start to help the government build up its security forces. The second overarching goal is to establish good governance. Uh, without good governance, uh, you're not going to have the institutions necessary to deliver the services uh, and the things that the people of Somalia need. And the third goal is to foster inclusive economic growth uh, such that the government can generate, start to generate its own revenue so that it can wean itself off of human, uh, international assistance uh, that it's currently dependent heavily on. Uh, so those are the overarching goals that we have in Somalia, Mr. Chairman, and I would continue to push if confirmed to achieve those goals. I would say that under uh, President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, uh, who came into office uh, in May of 2022, we are making, uh, they are making progress in all of these areas. Uh, there are some fits and starts in all of this, but I would say that the president has pushed forward on all of these areas, which are uh, synonymous with the approach that we as the United States are taking and trying to assist the president and his government, uh, both at the federal level and the federal member state level, to achieve these goals. Thank you. Yes, sir. I, I did travel to Somalia, and I'm well aware of the enormous complexities, and I, I know you appreciate them as well. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. Uh, turning to uh, Mr. Toner, what is your assessment of that recent election process? And there's a new round, the final round, I think, uh, uh, coming next month. Yeah, you referred to the goal of the elections being peaceful, free, and fair. I think these are the first that are not conducted under UN supervision since the end of the Civil War. What's your message to Liberians and to voters as we prepare for this, this runoff? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator. Um, <clears throat> uh, I, I hope, uh, respectfully, I hope you'll uh, understand my reluctance to pronounce on the conduct of the elections. The first round took place last week. Uh, those votes are still being tabulated by the National Electoral Committee, uh, so I don't want to get out ahead, ahead of the process. Uh, Senator, I would only add that our message, the U.S. government's message has been clear and consistent throughout the election season. And that has been that the Liberian people deserve elections that are free, fair, and peaceful. Uh, I would add that the first round seems to have gone off uh, without any real cases of violence, and that is encouraging. Uh, if confirmed, Senator, uh, I will make it my uh, priority to work with the uh, new uh, leadership of Liberia on the range of uh, the number of challenges it faces. Uh, Senator, which is why it's so important uh, that the Liberian people uh, see that leadership, that next uh, administration, uh, as, uh, uh, as credible, and so which is why the process matters so much. Uh, th uh, thank you. And I know the elections are being held in the context of some democratic backsliding across the continent, 
and uh, an election with serious deficiencies in neighboring Sierra Leone. A lot of work to do there, and the integrity in elections is so important yes, to the legitimacy of the government. Mr. White, in your testimony, you said that the Peace Corps proves the value of American leadership and uh, has the strategic goals of increasing local capacity sharing America with the world and bringing the world back home. I went to Vietnam this last year and they had their first class of Peace Corps ever. So as I was growing up, we had generations of young Americans going to Vietnam uh, to fight a war. And now we have a, a class that is there and a new class arriving that are arriving and uh, I believe they're only uh, dedicated to English proficiency, supporting English. Can you give a little uh, sense of how expanding the Peace Corps into Vietnam serves these goals that you have mentioned. Thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, I would tell you that I know that my colleagues at the Peace Corps are, of course, very excited about the tremendous progress in Vietnam. Uh, in the case such as these, uh, of course, we're looking at models like South Korea, and we think of uh, Vietnam's future as being a very bright one. Uh, more broadly, I do believe uh, in the capacity for good of American global leadership. Uh, Peace Corps, of course, plays an important role in that. When I think about our national security objectives, our foreign policy priorities, I think about the three Ds, so to speak, defense, diplomacy, and development. Peace Corps has a huge role to play in both diplomacy, because the volunteers are really grassroots diplomats, if you will, uh, in development as well, from everything from community economic development to sustainable agriculture and so many other respects. Um, and so I would say that Peace Corps, uh, through Vietnam and other areas in the Indo-Pacific and around the globe, uh, has a very large role to play, and I thank you for its support. Thank you. My time is up, and I'm going to ask everyone else if you can't get... I got that, that question in just under the five-minute bell. Uh, thank you for your response, and I will ask everyone to stick to, the, to the, the five minutes. I apologize, Ambassador, that I didn't get to you yet and to Mr. Martin, but there may be more opportunity to do so. Let me hand the, uh, the, the microphone over to my colleague, Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Mustafa Garg, uh, the ongoing conflict between Israel and Gaza will have consequences throughout the region. Egypt will have an important role to play. So I want to first touch on ensuring the safe exit of U.S. citizens and other nationals from Gaza through the Rafah crossing between Gaza and Egypt. I know you alluded to this in your testimony. Ambassador, for starters, if confirmed, will you commit to prioritizing this mission? And can you tell the committee what on-the-ground actions our embassy in Cairo can take to support this overall mission? Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Senator, for that very important question. Absolutely. The safety and security of American citizens is an, an utmost priority. I am heartened by the fact that the President has nominated Ambassador Satterfield to be our special envoy in the region. Uh, Ambassador Satterfield is someone I have known for over 20 years, and uh, he is actively working on this issue. And as you have seen, both the President and the Secretary have been actively engaged uh, with all of the parties to find a way forward. My understanding is that um, upon his return from 
Israel, the president had a good conversation with President al-Sisi, and they have agreed on allowing the humanitarian assistance into Gaza and our citizens out. They're working on the mechanism to do that, but the general agreement is there. Um, maybe you could unpack some of that. By the way, Ambassador Soderfield, I'd, I'd say, is an inspired choice. Uh, his his uh, work was exemplary in Yemen and I know in other uh, areas. So um, <clears throat> glad you'll be working actively with him should you be confirmed. What role uh, specifically do you believe the United States can play uh, in working with the Egyptians to ensure that this humanitarian access is sustained uh, what role should the embassy uh, take in conducting oversight and maintaining control over aid that's provided? So our uh, role, a very, very active role, my understanding about the situation on the ground at the border is that it's fluid, it's layered, um, and uh, the concerns of the Egyptians uh, regarding the influx of the refugees, the border security, and of course uh, Israel's own security um, is extremely important. So all of that combined uh, is um, unfortunately delaying what we would have loved to have seen um, earlier this week, uh, the aid going in and our citizens um, coming out along with the other uh, people at risk. So active engagement with all of the parties and with the UN uh, is extremely important to make sure this important mission is achieved. Well, thank you. My expectation will be that you and uh, other members of the administration will have the tools they need uh, to be Thank successful, you, but to the extent you, this, this committee can be helpful, I know uh, you, you and others will let us know uh, as soon as possible. Um, Mr. Martin, in light of the, this conflict um, uh, between Israel and Hamas and Hamas's control over Gaza, it's going to increasingly be important for us to impose the strictest scrutiny over our assistance to Gaza, uh, but also to the West Bank. If confirmed, do you commit to taking additional steps, including on-site verification where possible, to ensure that US-funded or enabled assistance to the Palestinian people is not diverted or even used for terrorist activities? Absolutely, Senator. It'd be one of the highest priorities of the office. Thank you. Um, and then, if confirmed, what actions will you take to pursue a comprehensive and forensic audit of U.S. assistance to Gaza and the West Bank, including through multilateral agencies like UNRWA, to ensure that past funds haven't been diverted or abused by the leadership of the Palestinian Authority? Yes, sir. Good question. It's one of the questions I have coming in, if, if confirmed, into the organization. So I think the U.S. aid OIG has ongoing work in several of those areas, and so I looked, to, if confirmed, understanding what that work is and increasing that work because the transparency through the uh, United Nations and other agencies is critically important. Well, I'm glad you're looking in, into that. Uh, would you commit to, uh, once you get clarity on that matter, reporting back to the committee, uh, what sort of actions you might be able to take? Absolutely, in that regard? Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator Young. Senator Schatz. Thank you very much, uh, 
Chairman, uh, Mr. Uh, White, uh, thank you for your willingness to serve. Um, the United States is trying to build and rebuild goodwill in the Pacific uh, after years of neglect, and people-to-people -people ties are central, especially in uh, island nations. I understand that at least four countries, uh, FSM, Kiribati, the Marshalls, and Palau have invited the Peace Corps back. Um, do I have your commitment to prioritize these requests? Thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, if confirmed, I'll certainly work with you uh, carefully and closely to ensure that we're prioritizing important countries. Thank you. Um, I also understand that the Solomon Islands Agreement has hit uh, some roadblocks. Do you, are you tracking that at all yet? Uh, thank you, Senator. I'm not privy to the details there, but if confirmed, I'll certainly get you that information. Okay, and I, th I think this is workable, but it is a roadblock, and I think one of the, the experiences we've had over the last, I would say, eight-ish years is that um, relatively solvable problems fester just from a lack of personal attention and sometimes physical presence in the region. Um, I know as well as anyone how hard it is to get, you know, you, getting to Honolulu is 10 hours if you're lucky, and then it's going to be another, in some instances, 10, 15, 18 hours, depending on uh, layovers and reliability and all the rest of it. So I, I really do think physical presence of the United States government manifested by the Peace Corps um, is critical, and I'm hoping I can have your uh, commitment uh, on that. Yes, Senator, absolutely. Thank you. Miss um, Garg, uh, Egypt is ranked 168th out of 180 countries by Reporters Without Borders and is currently imprisoning 19 journalists. Um, with the challenges posed by wartime misinformation and disinformation, I think it's, we've seen in the last couple of weeks how rotten the information ecosystem has become, and I'd like you to speak both to press freedom, but sort of the first cousin of that is just finding a reliable source of information and a dissemination strategy that will actually work, because I don't think you can play whack-a-mole with all the nonsense out there. I think what you have to do is just be reliable and hope that that um, uh, has its own uh, gravitational pull. So I'm wondering if you can give me your thoughts in that area. Thank you very much, Mr. Senator, for that very important question. And I'm going to um, respond in two parts. The first is on the very important rights of journalists and freedom of expression, which throughout my career I have defended. So I will continue to do so. The second is on the misinformation piece. And coming from Bulgaria, where that was a very important part of the job as well, I agree with you completely that it is incumbent upon us uh, not only to find reliable sources, but to be the ones who do the speaking ourselves to talk about the truth. And I will definitely use my uh, podium and Arabic to try to get that message across in the region because it's vitally important that uh, we are also telling our side of the story. So I hear your commitment and I appreciate your commitment, but I'm, I figured you would say that. I guess my question is, what do we do specifically? Because I think everyone operates under the principle that press freedom is, mm -hmm. is essential, and especially in um, times of conflict, it's essential to get good information out. I, I'm interested in, okay, so how do we operationalize that other than, you know, um, 
every time we have a bilateral, talk about press freedom, yes. you know, prioritize imprisoned mm -hmm. and imperiled journalists. All of those are things that we currently yes. do, but yes. frankly, the information environment and the press freedom environment continues to deteriorate. So mm -hmm. how do we change course? What, do you have any techniques or strategies or even preliminary thoughts along those lines? Uh, I can just tell you from previous experience some thoughts on that, uh, sir, which is if confirmed and after uh, working with the team on the ground and evaluating the environment, looking at uh, what additional training um, might be necessary, looking at which outlets, uh, for example, um, maybe it's online uh, outlets that might have more reliable sources, uh, rather than TV, um, uh, for example. So once uh, that survey is done, and then it would be to try to use the outlets uh, that have greater um, credibility uh, in order to get our messages across. Thank you. I, just one final thought, and I don't mean this in a hectoring or critical way. I don't think we have a theory of the case yet. I don't think we have a theory of the case. I don't think the administration does yet. I think this... This challenge has emerged so quickly that it um, that it's understandable that we're still in in a in a sort of a strategy development phase. But let's develop the strategy because I I am unsatisfied with even my own response, which is essentially, hey, what about press freedom? That's fine, um, but everyone's going to nod and say yes, press freedom is important and things keep going in the wrong direction. So I do think we need to rethink all of our strategic approaches to, to communications generally, but press uh, freedom in particular. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator Schuss. Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I want to thank all of our nominees here today for your commitment to serve our great nation and for your past service and to your families, especially uh, foreign service folks as previous governor of Nebraska. Uh, we went on a number of trade missions and the Foreign Service folks who helped us out in all those countries just did a fantastic job and really appreciate the sacrifice that you make living away from the country, living away from friends and family and that sort of thing. And then, uh, Mr. White, thank you for your service to our country in the military. Really appreciate that. And Ambassador Mustafa Garg, thank you for sharing your story about coming to America, your family story. And again, reminding us what a great country we have where someone who's got big dreams and willing to work can achieve so much. So thank you for reminding us what a great country we have. Since the brutal and illegal war that Russia launched on Ukraine, we have seen the United States Congress appropriate about $100 billion in aid to Ukraine. And this aid has been absolutely instrumental for Ukraine's ability to be able to resist that terrible invasion. And with that great aid also needs, comes the need for great oversight. We've got to make sure that the money is being spent well. And especially in the areas, if you think about humanitarian and economic aid, because it's not as tangible to see the results there or to be able to account for those results. And uh, the American taxpayers need to know where their money is going, and so it's important that we have strong oversight uh, for the amount of dollars that we're spending there. So I'm guessing, Mr. Martin, you know this, this question is coming to you. <laughs> I was afraid of that. <laughs> um, obviously, uh, you've got a long career, and again, coming from the private sector, not even everybody in the private sector understands the importance of oversight and auditors, uh, but obviously the Inspector General is a very key role that we have to have to be able to make sure the tax dollars are being spent appropriately. Um, obviously, you're going to be a part of the Joint Strategic Oversight Plan, uh, which is 
you know, part of uh, what the inspectors' duty roles from the DOD and the State Department. But what are your plans with regard to further oversight in Ukraine? Right. Thank you, sir. Um, so there is individual responsibility for the three in offices of Inspector General, State Department, Department of Defense, and USAID OIG. So we each have our individual audits and investigations ongoing, but then collectively the three offices come together and form what's called Operation Atlantic Resolve, which is this overseas contingency operation mechanism where the three IGs work with the Ukrainian uh, officials on the ground to track the uh, funds, both military and humanitarian assistance, to Ukraine to make sure they are being used for their intended purpose. Again, if confirmed, I would go in, see what the USAID is doing, no doubt increase the efforts that we're doing individually, and then work cooperatively with state and the Department of Defense IG. What of you is going to be the biggest challenges to doing that in Ukraine? What are going to be the obstacles for oversight? Yeah, I think it's actually boots on the ground. USAID OIG, is my understanding, has two criminal investigators at the embassy in Kyiv, and we would like to get up to six more auditors and investigators on the ground, but the, the number of folks who are permitted at the embassy is controlled for security reasons by the State Department. So we need more boots on the ground permanently there. So is there something Congress can do to be helpful on that? For example, if we create a special investor, investigator general or whatever, uh, is that something that, uh, inspector general, is that something that would be helpful to be able to get more boots on the ground? Or are there I actually think creating a special inspector general for Ukraine oversight would be less helpful. Really? Because you have the three inspector generals who have the authority and who already have the mechanisms and the in, in agreements with the Ukrainian officials to superimpose a new inspector general on top of that, I think would be counterproductive. The amount of time it would take to set that office up, the inevitable conflicts with the other inspector generals who are doing work there. So I think it's, it's best to continue to rely on the three offices of inspector general who currently have jurisdiction there. So is there anything else Congress can be doing to be able to be helpful to make sure we're providing you the resources you need for oversight? Because I think right now we've supplied about $13 million to be able to do oversight, is there anything else we need to be doing? No, I think, again, it's a security situation on the ground for us getting more individuals, more auditors, more investigators in there. My sense is that the offices of Inspector General are funded well enough at this point, but I would suggest that any additional supplemental appropriations to Ukraine have a small sliver for the oversight component as well. So it sounds like what you want to do, though, is work with the State Department to get more of those inspectors in there because they're the ones that are the gatekeepers on how many can get in. Is that 100%. accurate? 100%. All right, great. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Martin. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you, sir. Chairman. Thank you very much, Senator Ricketts. And now we're turning to uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, let me add my thanks to the entire panel for your careers of service and your willingness to continue to serve. None of these are easy places that you are headed to. Um, I wanted to spend a little bit more time on Egypt with you, Ambassador Garg. Um, Many of us who have received briefings about the inability to flow humanitarian assistance into Gaza have been disturbed at how hard it has been to convince our ally, our ally, Egypt, um, to do the right thing uh, and allow for aid to flow. Um, this is a country that we obviously spend over a billion dollars on, second only to Egypt in terms of taxpayer commitment to military support. Um, I was a little concerned about your opening statement in which you said that our security cooperation with Egypt is an investment in, quote, 
self-reliant, capable, and accountable Egyptian armed forces aligned with U.S. priorities and values. It does not feel like the Egyptian military is aligned with U.S. values. This is a military that was willing to do a pretty large-scale deal with Russia, only undone by vigorous tactical U.S. diplomacy. This is a military that is used by the regime to try political dissenters in military courts. Reports are that there are upwards of 30, 40, 50,000 people in jail for their political views. And the military is very much a part of that repressive, that, that campaign of repression. So I, I just wanted to ask you to drill down on that statement. It's hard for me to imagine that you believe that the Egyptian military is aligned with U.S. values. Everything we see suggests that they are not. And we need an ambassador in Egypt who understands that we are in a fight to try to make sure that our dollars uh, ultimately um, try to press and enact real reform. Senator, I agree with you that this is a significant investment. I would say that there's a tremendous range of administration priorities where Egypt does have a significant role, whether it is in Ukraine, whether it's elections in Libya, whether it's the conflict in Sudan, and of course, what we're seeing in Gaza right now, whether it's counterterrorism in the Sinai, whether it's nonproliferation, and it's Hard to imagine a path forward on any of these issues where we bypass Egypt. So th that's so not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is if I agree, we have right. a number of important lines of effort with Egypt. My question is, do you believe that the Egyptian military shares our values? We do believe that the on the specific case of what you're talking about in Gaza, the the Egyptian government does want to see aid to enter and our citizens and other people at risk to leave. The mechanism is in discussion right now between us, the Egyptians, the Israelis, and other international organizations, but we do believe they have that same goal. It's the mechanism that is still being worked out the president did have a good conversation with the CC yesterday. We do have the commitment for that to happen. Okay, maybe on, on human rights. Okay. Um, I share with you, Senator Murphy, the concerns, and this is an issue, as you know, is a priority for the administration. It will be a priority for me. Human rights is a part of national security. They're not two separate things. They are together. Um, and uh, and so, I so commit to continuing this discussion with the Egyptians so that we do see tangible progress on these very important issues that will strengthen our relationship so before my, time, before my time is up, Please. so maybe it is hard to make a broad statement on whether they share our values or not, because as you point out, there are areas in which we hope that they do share our values, like getting humanitarian aid into Gaza. But on the issue of the treatment of 
political dissent, let me try to narrow it <laughs> so that we can come to a conclusion. On the issue of treatment of political dissent, um, do you believe that the Egyptian military shares our values on how we treat military, how we treat political dissent? Senator, there's no doubt that there's room for improvement there. There's no doubt on that issue. And if confirmed, I commit to doing what I can along with the embassy to really make progress on that very, very important issue of political dissent. So I, I think you're in a tough spot. You have to be careful about what you say. I appreciate that. I think you're going to do a great job on the ground. Look forward to working with you. I, I, I want our diplomats to tell the truth about what is happening in politically repressive countries, and maybe that will be a little bit easier in the future. Um, but I appreciate your willingness to go and do a tough job. Look forward to working with you. Thank you. Senator Coons. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to all five of our nominees today, and thank you to your families for their support of your long careers in public service. Uh, I'm grateful for your willingness to take on what are often uh, difficult um, terms of service in uh, challenging and occasionally dangerous places. Um, I will try to briefly address questions to a few of you. I would welcome the chance to question thoroughly all of you, um, but within the boundaries of five minutes, it's a challenge. Uh, Mr. White, I'm particularly um, enthusiastic about our making progress uh, here on the committee with Peace Corps reauthorization, something that hasn't happened in a number of years. Uh, and I'm excited about our steady re-engagement with the world through the Peace Corps. I think it has, as you mentioned in your opening statement, laid the foundation for more than a quarter million Americans to serve across the world across many decades. I will never forget my first meeting with the president of Ghana, who before Senator Isaacson and I could say anything else, said, I want you to know the only reason I am today president is because of two young Americans who came to my remote village and taught English and science. And his quote was, the United States is a country that became great not by what you took from us, but by what you gave to us, and that's because of the Peace Corps. Uh, your own um, record of service in our military, um, your skills and training and experience, I think, make you well qualified for this role. I'd just be interested in um, how you see us um, getting to the 10,000 volunteer target, what you think are the barriers to recruitment, um, and how does increasing Peace Corps engagement in the global south uh, also help advance some of our strategic interests in terms of competing with other countries that have different values and different priorities? Well, thank you, Senator, first of all, for the kind words and for the question as well. Um, I do believe that, of course, American global leadership and its capacity for good. And I think some of those uh, examples you gave are, are so many, and I've, and I've heard so many other examples of world leaders and, and everyday people whose lives have been enriched by Peace Corps. Um, I do think that we need to continue to do um, great work in recruiting folks to serve in the Peace Corps. As it relates to public service writ large, we are seeing, I think, as we're all aware, less folks who are signing up to serve. Um, I noticed that, of course, uh, different aspects of the military, of course, the Marines seem to do quite well. And I have a lot of family members, including a nephew, serving overseas in the Marine Corps. Um, but I think Peace Corps has taken a really uh, great turn and executed an excellent marketing strategy now with the Go Bold initiative. Um, as you and your colleagues may have seen um, plastered all around here in D.C., but also in, in other places around the country, uh, inspiring people to serve, inspiring folks to, to heed that clarion call that President Kennedy uh, gave so many years ago. Uh, I think it's absolutely vital um, that we also ensure that we're getting a broad cross-section of folks from across this country um, so we can bring the best of America abroad 
and abroad back home. And thank you. I have just two minutes left. So briefly, Mr. Toner, if I might, I've been to Liberia four times. It's a country that has a diaspora community in Delaware. Um, go Irish, your own education, I think, laid the foundation for your service then in the Peace Corps. I'm thrilled you are returning to Liberia. Um, I would just be interested very briefly in how you think you and your role, if confirmed, can support democratic institutions in a country that suffered from an incredibly destructive civil war um, that really destroyed much of the civil institutions. I was close to the two-term president who laid a lot of the foundation for that, um, but I'm very concerned about the direction, particularly given the dynamics of this election. Briefly, how would you promote democratic institutions? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator. Um, I, I think, uh, as you noted, Senator, uh, uh, given where Liberian came from uh, in 2003, a lot of progress has been made, but there's a lot uh, that needs to be done. Senator, if confirmed, uh, I would focus somewhat like a laser beam on corruption. I believe corruption is uh, probably, the, probably the biggest single impediment to progress not only on the uh, d democracy building front, but also on the economic development front. And uh, that will be uh, a clear focus of, uh, uh, for me if I am confirmed. Thank you, and I think frankly more broadly, um, we would do better in the Global South if we were credibly seen as an advocate and ally for those who stand against corruption. Um, it, we restrain our businesses with the FCPA. We might as well get more credit for the fact that we do business in the developing world in a cleaner, more transparent way. Ambassador Garg, if I might, um, I'm about to travel to Egypt. It's a country I've been to many, many times, and I value deeply our close partnership and relationship. Um, but as Senator Murphy's questioning highlighted, um, we have a real disagreement, a real tension over political prisoners, the suppression of dissent. I intend to raise this again uh, with al-Sisi. Um, there's been public reporting um, that uh, Egypt, which is neutral in the war in Ukraine, um, has considered um, selling arms uh, to the Russians, has decided hopefully not to. Um, they are an enormous consumer of grain from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, they're a critical regional leader. They play an important role in relations with Sudan. Uh, what will you most prioritize in your service as ambassador? And how will you ensure that you strike that right balance between advocating for human rights and civil liberties and sustaining an enduring partnership that is key to Israeli-Egyptian relations and security? Thank you for that question. I will uh, just say I think human rights are part of our national security. And uh, in my previous assignments, I have demonstrated that we can accomplish both. Um, as an example, what in previous assignment, military modernization, energy diversification, and rule of law reform. Having a confirmed ambassador on the ground elevates our ability to raise these issues consistently, which is absolutely important. Um, and if confirmed, I commit to doing that, sir. Thank you, Ambassador Garg. I'll have um, some questions for the record, if I might, Mr. Riley. Mr. Martin, I apologize for not also engaging with you. Effective and engaged oversight on our robust programming is critical. Somalia is a nation that badly needs a skilled and seasoned representative of the United States. I hope we will quickly confirm all of the nominees today. Thank you for your patience with my going over, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Coons. Senator Shaheen. Congratulations to each of you on your nominations, and I look forward to working with you if confirmed.
Uh, Mr. Riley, I want to begin with you because as Russia's continued its unprovoked war in Ukraine, one of the collateral pieces of collateral damage, sadly, has been that global food prices have continued to rise rapidly. It's had a huge impact, um, not just um, in the Middle East or in um, Eastern Europe, but also in Africa. I understand that Somalia has re received more than 80,000 tons of wheat from Ukraine last year, and it's experiencing record high food prices. So how can we, and, and one, of the, one of the other um, challenges is that many of people in Africa and other countries that are affected are blaming the United States um, rather than blaming Russia who should appropriately be blamed for what's happened. So how can we um, improve our public diplomacy to communicate with folks um, about what's really causing the high food prices and the impact on them? Thank you, Senator, for the question. I think it's an extremely important one in relation, especially to Somalia. Uh, the United States remains the single largest humanitarian donor to Somalia. Uh, we've given $890 million in each of the last two fiscal years. We're up to $1.7 billion in the totality of the humanitarian assistance that we've, been, we've given to Somalia. And this is because of the situation on the ground. Uh, there is a desperate situation in Somalia with five recurrent uh, rainy seasons that have failed. There has been a, the longest drought in history. We have the, Somalia's population is 17 million people. Uh, according to the statistics I have from all of our aid workers who are there, 8.25 million of those are classified in need of humanitarian assistance. Mm -hmm. That's about half the population. And I'm sorry and, to interrupt, but, but I'm at, almost out of time. Yes, and the question that I'm really asking, though, I appreciate um, the dire need yes. that they have for um, food because of what's happening. But the question that I have is how do we better communicate to people in the region about what's responsible for that. Yeah. I'll be very succinct, we have to do a lot better. Uh, I've worked on a lot of countries where we've given tremendous amounts of aid, but we do not do a good job in our public diplomacy in getting that word out. Uh, you have my commitment, uh, if I'm confirmed as ambassador, we'll leverage every platform, every vehicle that we have to get the word out to the Somali people that it's the United States of America and our taxpayers who are funding this tremendous amount of aid to the people of Somalia. Thank you very much. Um, Mr. White, I think um, what's happening with the Peace Corps is um, very encouraging. New Hampshire is one of the top 10 states in terms of providing Peace Corps volunteers. We're very proud of that. Um, but how will you ensure that the Peace Corps is fully implementing the recommendations from the Sexual Assault Advisory Council, including working with local staff and communities on sexual assault prevention. Thank you, Senator, for the question, and, and thanks also for your support of the Peace Corps in getting to the top 10. Um, I would tell you, first of all, safety and security is the highest priority. Uh, that includes prevention of sexual assault and sexual uh, harassment. We must strive to zero incidents. Unfortunately, we know we live in a dangerous world. Um, that's true here at home, and it's true abroad as well. So when the worst does happen, we need to ensure that the response uh, is victim-centered, treats victims with dignity and respect, the full suite of reporting options, the resources they need uh, to move beyond that, uh, and of course then pivot 
again, towards safety and security. This is also a recruiting matter. Um, and it's also an equity matter. It's a recruiting matter because people need to know that they're safe and secure and that we're going to take good care of them. Uh, and secondly, as it relates to equity, uh, this is something that affects, tends to affect, you know, one particular set of the population. And we need to make sure that we're taking care of all people equally. So you have my commitment, if confirmed, to work on this as one of my highest priorities, Senator. Well, thank you. We'll be watching. Um, and if we can be helpful, please let us know. A Ambassador Mustafa Gard. Can you explain in the 20 seconds that I have left why um, Egypt is unwilling to open the Rafah crossing? My understanding is that Egypt does want the crossing Let me open. rephrase that, why they have been so reluctant to open the crossing to date and why there is no commitment, notwithstanding the president's um, statement, uh, that there will be ongoing humanitarian aid that will come through the Rafa crossing? I think there is now a commitment. For ongoing aid? Ongoing. I've heard that they've, they're going to allow 20 trucks in, As the first but launch. I understood that they were still negotiating. And, and the question is really, why? Why did it take them so long, and why are they so reluctant? My understanding is that the situation at the border is very fluid um, and layered. They have been concerned about Again, the, the influx of the refugees, also the security at the border, but they're also working with the Israeli side. Both sides had concerns. And until both sides could reach an agreement on the mechanism, that border was not opening. There is now an agreement, uh, and we're cautiously optimistic that um, we will soon be seeing that flow in both directions. Thank you. I hope so. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Sheehan. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ms. Garg. As you know, the U.S.-Egypt relationship has been damaged over the past week in the aftermath of the war that Hamas launched against Israel. A summit with President Biden, Egyptian President Sisi, and other Arab leaders was just canceled. On Tuesday night, a rocket fired by Palestinian terrorists fell short of Israel and landed instead in the parking lot of a hospital in Gaza. Palestinian officials in Gaza, which means Hamas, immediately announced that it was an Israeli airstrike and that 500 people had been killed. Their propaganda was then parroted and amplified by American corporate media Reuters, The New York Times, MSNBC, and CNN. Anti-American riots broke out across the Middle East. Mobs marched on American embassies. The corporate media's rabid anti-Israel reporting that was false endangered the lives of Americans across the region, including our diplomats. That libel continues to reverberate in Egypt. The Egyptian government and public continues to peddle the lie, and they blame America. How do you intend to navigate in this environment in Egypt? What can be done specifically? Thank you, Senator, for that question. I believe strongly that having a confirmed ambassador in place helps elevate our engagement um, and our ability to advance our U.S. interests. In this case, it's also building the relationships and the trust, which is extremely important for us to do. 
um, and being active in terms of uh, telling our side of the story and the truth, which I think is also very important to do. Do you believe that this sort of anti-Israel media disinformation undermines American national security interests? I can say, uh, Mr. Senator, an issue that has come up several times today, uh, which I think is vitally important, is disinformation in general and how we as a U.S. government need to think uh, more strongly about how we deal with disinformation across the globe, and in particular um, in the Middle East. Well, unfortunately, many in the media uh, allow their hatred of Israel to color their coverage, and indeed in this instance to cause them to peddle outright falsehoods. Mm -hmm. But the media is not alone. I want to ask you about another source of anti-American and anti-Israel incitement in Egypt the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. The Muslim Brotherhood, as in the past, seized control of the Egyptian government, and they remain influential and dangerous. Mm -hmm. The Egyptian government has imprisoned prominent Muslim Brotherhood figures. I want to ask you about one in particular, mm -hmm. Salah Sultan. Mm -hmm. As you know, Sultan is a Muslim Brotherhood leader and a hate preacher. He has called for the eradication of Jews. He has called for, and this is a quote, obliterating America. He has called it divine law. Now, when you and I met in my office, we discussed this case. The Biden administration, bizarrely, has been pressuring Egypt to release Sultan and has even brought up his case to withhold assistance to Egypt. Some of my colleagues here in the Senate and on this committee agree with that pressure. I'd ask for your judgment. I understand there are genuine concerns about Egypt's imprisonment and treatment of political prisoners. However, Sultan is not an American citizen and is in fact an anti-American radical who preaches the murder of Americans and the murder of Jews. How on earth does it make sense that the Biden administration is trying to free a rabid anti-Semite who hates America and preaches violence against both Israel and America? Thank you, Mr. Senator, for that question. Um, and thank you from our last meeting, uh, you highlighted a few of the actual sites, um, which I did watch um, in Arabic to make sure that, that nothing was lost in translation. Um, and I, condemn um, in the strongest sense, and I think everyone on this committee condemns uh, the comments that I did hear um, Mr. Uh, Sultan make um, on public TV in Egypt. That said, the United States government, this administration, is pushing for rights across the board for those in prison to have medical access. He's 80 years old. He's so, been in so prison with respect, for a long time. With respect, it's not medical access. There are members of this committee that are trying to write into law that America should free this man. And I'm, my time has expired, but I just want to read two quotes from him to understand who it is the Biden administration is trying to free. Here's one quote. We will fight Israel and all those who are behind it. Allah is present in this equation, and he is capable of obliterating America 
and any other oppressor. This is a divine law. That's one quote. Here's another quote. As someone who has studied Islamic law, specializing in Islamic jurisprudence, I am calling to kill the Israeli ambassador, not just expel him, any Zionist, tourist or other, who enters Egypt must be killed. I ask my Democrat colleagues, is this someone that we should be fighting to release from jail to be able to follow through on exactly what he's pledged he wants to do, which is murder Jews and murder Americans? Senator Cardin. Well, first, uh, let me thank Senator Merkley and Sarah Young for ch chairing and, uh, and arranging for this hearing. Uh, getting our nominees hearings and confirmation votes is one of our highest priorities. And I want to thank the cooperation of Senator Risch uh, and Senator Young in accommodating this hearing. I want to thank all five of our nominees for their willingness to serve our nation. We know it's a family event, so I thank your families as well because they'll be uh, required uh, for the sacrifices. I know some of you are for different confirmations and some are countries, some are not. I recognize that. When we have a hearing, we like to get as many as we possibly can in, but we want to make sure we have an opportunity to um, uh, give members a, a chance to uh, ask their questions. Uh, I, I'm going to just make a, a general comment about, and, and I welcome your response, particularly as it relates to Egypt, but that our policies need to be wrapped in our values. President Biden has said that frequently, that we can have strategic relations with other countries. Egypt's a very important country for the United States. It has a norm, it's normalized its relationship with, with Israel. It's a critical partner in regards to humanitarian needs in Gaza. It has an uh, incredibly important role to play in regards to peace in that region and the expansion of normalization. But Egypt has very serious human rights violations by its government. It's still operating basically under the uh, autocratic rule as a result of the challenges they've had from uh, violence in their country. So my question to each of you is uh, how will you make sure that American values, international values for protection of human rights are embedded in your responsibilities uh, representing the United States either in country or the positions that you have been uh, nominated for? So we can start first with the. Thank you for that question, um, Mr. Chairman. And human rights are part of our national security. They're not two separate. Uh, paths. They are together. And I want to say thank you for your cooperation um, in Bulgaria. And this is an example that I would like to highlight um, where we were, by working together with you and your team, um, able, we were able to make significant progress on rule of law thanks to the authority um, that uh, the authority that you have given on the Global Magnitsky Act, for example. Um, and so moving forward, it's important for us to not only look at the range of authorities and the tools, but to continue to work together to try to promote them. Thank you. Uh, let me, Mr. Martin, I'm curious as to how you, as in, in, in the role as an inspector general, can advance 
I understand you, you're making sure we're complying with law, but how do you make sure also that there is sensitivity to the mission of USAID, which is very much our values? Very much so. So I think the, the word accountability is key to promoting the democratic values of this country. It's the world's lar largest donor nation, uh, and I think that shows the spirit of the American people. But I think we need to have proper checks and balances and accountability to make sure that those funds are going into the right hands and having the desired effect. I appreciate that. Mr. White, you're, you're uh, being nominated for one of my favorite organizations in the world. There are days I would like to trade spaces, places and be in the Peace Corps <laughs> rather than here. It seems like it would be a, uh, a nice place to be. We're recruiting, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I might have some time here after next year, so I'll, I'll let you know how I'm doing. Yes, sir. But if you could uh, just tell me how you see American values in, uh, in the ambassadors we have under the Peace Corps, how we can strengthen that relationship. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I would just say briefly um, that we have to live our values. It's really the power of our example and looking at volunteers as grassroots diplomats that's gonna make the difference here. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Booker, thank you for your patience. It is well, now your turn. Truly grateful, and I'll always give deference to our chairman, uh, Senator Cardin. Uh, always, sir, always, sir. You could look so dubious at me. Um, first of all, I just wanna say thank you to, to the five of you. It's extraordinary that you're here your careers, each individual, your bios, read to such deep patriotism. And that doesn't just go gratitude towards the five of you, but I wanna give gratitude to your families. It really is a sacrifice uh, to do the jobs that you do. Clearly, you're not doing it for the money, um, but you are, uh, uh, to me, demonstrating the best of human values, which is a commitment to service, and service, in this case, to the country. Uh, Ms. Gar, you've been uh, getting a lot of action. I have a lot of thoughts. I look forward to working with you, but I'm, I'm gonna, let you take a pause on, on my round at least. Um, uh, Mr. White, I just wanna, uh, it's been a frustration to me, but we've seen a lot of progress over my years in the Senate on just diversity in the State Department. I, when I would travel around, I would see the face of America, these incredibly de dedicated public servants, but it would not be, I would not see that many people of color, um, religious diversity and the like. Um, I don't know the data for the Peace Corps, but I'm wondering, uh, as you all look to ramp up recruiting, um, I'm wondering how do you keep this uh, conscious that it is actually important that uh, those people that are abroad doing such incredible work um, reflect the rich diversity of our country. Thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, it's vitally important. It's very important to Peace Corps' mission, of course, of uh, promoting peace and, and friendship. Uh, when a volunteer goes overseas, they have to have a level of cultural competence to be effective. Um, and of course, the world is a very diverse place. And so just like with my colleagues here who served in the Foreign Service, it's important that uh, volunteers represent a, a broad cross-section of folks who serve. That's in the more traditional characteristics of, of diversity when it comes to race, but it's also important in terms of geographic diversity, making sure we're getting folks from the heartland, from the coast, from all over, because that's what makes us a stronger organization at the end of the day. I appreciate that at a time that I'm seeing so much pushback on ideas of diversity. Um, we, in this, uh, with the State Department, we've seen a lot of great progress with paid internship programs and uh, more uh, conscious recruiting. I really appreciate that you're, that you're focused on that. Uh, Mr. Riley, really excited about uh, what you're getting a chance to do in a country that, uh, to me, uh, is so vital to U.S. interests. I know uh, Senator Shaheen rightfully talked a lot about the humanitarian effort, but that obviously is related to the, the, the challenges we've been having with al-Shabaab. Now, there's been a lot of great progress made um, 
and I'm wondering if you could sort of describe to me how you think as uh, the African Union's mission of uh, uh, sort of, of transition, they're, they're moving out. Um, and I'm wondering if that progress with Al-Shabaab is, is tenuous, given some of the humanitarian concerns, does that make it more ripe that we have to be really uh, uh, worried, despite what the UN and the Africa, African Union seem to be thinking about uh, uh, the, the, the direction of our work against Al-Shabaab? Thank you very much, Senator. Um, in regard to Al-Shabaab in Somalia, obviously they are a malignant and persistent terrorist threat to the Somali people, to the country, and to the broader region there in East Africa, and to U.S. personnel in the region. We all know that. Um, what I am heartened by understanding and knowing is that there has been progress against al-Shabaab. They do not have widespread, widespread popular support within the country, given how virulently extremist they are and how they persecute their own people. Uh, and they are one of the wealthiest affiliates of al-Qaeda in the world. So they are a, a malignant and a real threat that must be faced. Uh, what I'm heartened to see and understand is that through all of the support that we have given and our partners in the Quint have given in terms of standing up the Somali security forces and the progress that's been made in that area, uh, progress is being made. More territory has been regained in the last, I think it's 14 months than in the previous five years against al-Shabaab, which is a real, real success. That has to continue. Uh, we know that there was some setbacks last month in Galmadug uh, in that offensive. Uh, we all recognize that. But as you also know, the federal government, uh, together with the African Union, have asked for a pause uh, briefly for 90 days for that uh, scheduled drawdown of the Atmos forces. Uh, that's for 90 days through to the end of the December. But the scheduling of the the drawdown of Atmos and the stand up of the Somali security forces will proceed apace. There is still the goal of having the Somali security forces uh, securing the country with Atmos not there by the end of next year. Thank uh, you. I'm going to stop you there because yes, I want to get a question, Mr. Toner. I just yes. will say that I'm hopeful for the elections in 24. Yes. It's an issue I'd love to explore with you at some point. Uh, Mr. Toner, I'm excited about your position. I, 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 I've got a lot of DNA from West Africa, and Liberia is obviously a country that for its history with the United States, especially African-American diaspora, has been extraordinary. Uh, I think the questions already about corruption were really uh, a key. I have some humanitarian concerns as well. There's places of great food insecurity there. The one thing I just want to ask, and I'm treading upon the generosity and kindness of, of of Senator Kane, who I'm just a warm-up act for. Um, uh, but I, I just want to ask you, uh, I'm really concerned about the competition with China, and I'm wondering if you can just, in my last question, just tell me how, how you see that uh, competition. They're obviously playing very hard in the country, uh, in a country that is, uh, we are probably their most valuable partner, but I'm concerned about Chinese influence. Thank you for the question. I don't think we can ever be... Um uh, complacent about the PRC uh, and their and their involvement throughout uh, that West Africa and Africa in general. Um, I, I would argue, though, Senator, and and to your point, um, our voice matters there. Our involvement matters there. Um, uh, I think the fact that we've just got Peace Corps volunteers back in the country that we remain uh, we re, um, we have a robust public engagement program, public diplomacy program. Uh, we are still. Uh, the country that Liberians look to for guidance and for a model. And, uh, and sir, uh, I will make it my priority to continue those efforts. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to the nominees. Uh, Mr. Rudd, I want to talk to you a little bit about Peace Corps personnel issues, following up on some that, that uh, Senator Booker raised. The Peace Corps is currently 
the subject of a federal lawsuit that accuses it of discriminating against applicants with disabilities in violation of the Rehabilitation Act. And in particular, this is a lawsuit that is also um, consistent with some constituent outreach to our office. People apply to get into the Peace Corps, they get an offer made to them, they undergo a medical clearance process, and then they find that their offers are rescinded, uh, some because they have sought mental health counseling in the past, some because they take uh, anti-anxiety medication or anti-depression medication. The, the gist of the lawsuit is that folks are being discriminated against on the grounds of seeking mental health um, support, which we should not be discouraging, we should be encouraging. Um, we know that we have a lot of stigma issues surrounding mental health, and people don't seek treatment sometime when they need it, but the fact that they might need mental health treatment is no different than I might need, you know, a cholesterol medication or something like that, and people shouldn't be um, punished or, or believe that they're going to be punished in employment because they're seeking assistance on mental health issues. Um, I don't want you to comment on the lawsuit, but I do want you to tell me that should you be confirmed that you approach this responsibility uh, with an understanding that there's nothing wrong with seeking mental health treatment, and that shouldn't, be an, that shouldn't be a bar to serving in the Peace Corps or in any other public service or private sector job for that matter. Thank you, Senator. I appreciate the question. I think you're absolutely right. It is important that people seek help when they need that. Um, I would tell you that as an Army veteran, I find it incredibly important. Um, I talk to a number of my uh, former colleagues who are veterans and encourage them to seek help when they need it. We need to destigmatize uh, seeking help. And as far as I see, uh, needing help for mental health purposes is no different than breaking an arm or needing to get your cholesterol down. <laughs> yeah. So it's important that we get uh, that help when we need it. And it's important that there is a system at play um, that takes into account volunteer safety and security while at the same time encouraging that people get help. And if confirmed, I'll certainly get under the hood on that and work with your office to make sure that we're striking the right balance. Please do. I, I like the broken arm analogy. If somebody walks in to a hearing with the cast, I'll usually say, oh, what, what happened and can I sign your cast? And it's a very easy conversation. And conversations about mental health should be equally as easy. We all have to work to make sure that's the case in whatever capacity. Um, I worked in Honduras as a missionary many years ago, and Peace Corps was really active in Honduras. Peace Corps pulled out of Honduras in 2012 for legitimate concerns over safety at the time, uh, extensive violence in the country, and the Peace Corps also pulled out of some other countries in the Northern Triangle, including El Salvador. The Peace Corps announced, I think, earlier this year that they're going to come back to El Salvador, which I view as a positive. I don't know if you know anything about status with Honduras and my discussions with Honduras, Honduran businesses and governmental leaders, they've expressed interest in the Peace Corps starting up uh, again in Honduras. Do you know anything about the status of that right now? Uh, thank you, Senator. I'm not privy to the inner workings, but I do know that Peace Corps takes very seriously its responsibility to safety and security of the volunteers, and it's really an ongoing assessment as I understand it, and if confirmed would be committed to working with your office to ensure that we get you the latest information and thinking on that. That would be great. I mean, and I know that the Peace Corps coming back, it begins with the request of the, the government. And I have not talked to President Castro to know whether there's been an official request for the Peace Corps to come back. I've talked to other government officials and private sector leaders in Honduras that hope that might come back. The Honduran 
um, violence rates are not that different. And frankly, I think they're a little bit less than those in Salvador. And with the Peace Corps back in El Salvador, I hope there might be a way to come back into Honduras because I think it's been a really important relationship. Last question I want to ask is to Mr. Toner, and it's about domestic violence. Um, Gender-based violence in Liberia is, you know, commonly at the top of the charts in terms of polling about what people want to see done, what a problem that people want to see action on. In 2019, Liberia passed the Domestic Violence Act. That's laudable, but implementation of the act still needs uh, a lot to be desired. Should you be confirmed, how could you work with Liberia to make sure that we strengthen implementation and take additional steps and set an example to try to um, demonstrate the importance of reducing uh, gender-based violence? Thank you for the question, Senator. Um, uh, if confirmed, um, obviously human rights would be uh, among my priorities. Um, and, and as you noted, Senator, uh, gender-based violence, uh, including female genital mutilation, is, are among the concerns that are cited in the annual uh, State Department Human Rights Report. Um, I think it, uh, a two-pronged approach, if I may, sir. Um, I think we need to, I need to work with the, the government, the leadership, uh, to make sure that they understand this is a priority. Equally, we need to work with civil society and engage. And, uh, Senator, I'm always uh, uh, an advocate for shining a light on these issues. As much as our voice can get out there, it, it offers solace and it offers um, a symbol to others who are looking for that. Again, I'm fully cognizant of the great power that America influence has on Liberia. So as much as we can be a model and be a voice and an advocate for change, uh, I, I plan to do that, sir. Thanks for that answer. I yield back. Thank you, Sen. No time is left to yield back, but thank you. <laughs> Senator Van Hollen. Thank you, Senator Merkley, and congratulations to all of you on your, your nominations. Um, Mr. Martin, it's good to see you, a Marylander uh, in the group. Um, and I want to pick up on some of the comments that uh, Senator Kane said with um, respect to the, the, the Peace Corps. Um, and Mr. White, congratulations on your uh, nomination. Um, I try to make it a point whenever I'm overseas in an official capacity uh, to meet with our Peace Corps volunteers. I come from a Foreign Service family and then deep appreciation for what they do and our other Foreign Service uh, and, and Foreign Service officers do. But on the Peace Corps, I was recently in Vietnam with Senator Merkley. We made a point to meet with the Peace Corps volunteers, and I also, uh, which is a first, as you probably know, I'm sure you know. And then in Sri Lanka recently, uh, getting the Peace Corps back uh, in the end of the year, both stops, I, I got a chance to uh, see the Peace Corps, new Peace Corps group in action in Vietnam and the preparations being made in Sri Lanka. So I look forward to working with you, um, as, you as you move forward, uh, on, on assuming you get your confirmation, which I do support. Um, Thank you, if I could, um, um, Ambassador Mustafa Garb, I, I, I would like to use the time to better understand exactly what's going on with respect to desperately needed humanitarian relief in southern Gaza. And I realize that you've been nominated, you haven't been confirmed, but I also assume uh, that you've been following this issue very closely. And we are trying to untangle exactly uh, what the obstacles are. Uh, as I understood your, your testimony, you believe an agreement has been reached to provide sustained humanitarian relief across the border. My understanding is that an agreement has been reached to open up the border. The mechanisms are being worked on all three sides 
By that, I mean the UN, Israel, and uh, with Egypt. Um, and as the president said, this first tranche will go as long as Hamas doesn't try to confiscate that first tranche. Then we hope there will be additional tranches. So the first tranche meeting the 20 trucks, is that what you're talking about? Yes, sir. Okay. And when it comes to, so the Egyptians, as you understand, have cleared that. Uh, is, the Israelis have cleared that, subject to what kind of other requirements? Yes, my understanding is there has been a general agreement reached. In terms of the situation on the ground at the border, which is fluid and layered, uh, first of all, I, I would say that on the Gaza side, they need an authority to organize the people who would go across, and that authority is not Hamas. In addition to that, it's making sure that the goods that go in are inspected to well, also I, make I sure... Can, if I, 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 just, I don't have a lot of time. I'm just trying to figure out our pieces. We're just exactly. trying to get information. This so... Is, so uh, uh, there is no other, right, right now, obviously, Israel is prosecuting its war against Hamas. Yes. We yes. support them getting rid of Hamas. But so what other authority would there be in yeah. southern Gaza? Are we talking about these, the United Nations? What are we talking, what, what could that possibly be? So this is, these are all the complexities that are involved in the area and uh, why we have sent David Satterfield out to the region to focus on exactly this issue, sir. Because that situation is fluid, because of the war, uh, you know, details such as having to repave the roads on which the trucks will enter are the details that the parties are working out. Okay. Well, one of the, one of the most desperate situations right now mm -hmm. of all the humanitarian needs is access to water. Uh, because uh, right now, um, Israel has turned off the water uh, except for my understanding is one pipe in southern Gaza, which is where it's turned on only for a few hours a day. Um, so what you're telling me is that it's going to take a, potentially a lot more time to get bottled water in convoys across the Gaza-Egypt border. Is that what you're saying? I think the situation is very complex and... and if confirmed, I commit to following up closely. I don't have all the details on the timelines. Um, I do know that there is a commitment, uh, definitely from our side, uh, and um, in the great work of Ambassador Satterfield, but also in the President's conversation with President El Sisi, he did receive that assurance. Uh, so um, this is an issue, if confirmed, I will um, well, okay. We'll Just, um, I, I understand you're not, you're not, you don't have this responsibility yet. All I can say is there's really no time, uh, according to all the UN officials, uh, they're down to about one liter a day in rations for water in southern Gaza, which is not enough to support human life. Uh, you have Gazans flooding into the south because that's where they were told to go, innocent Gazans. And so it just underscores the need, in my view, uh, to have Israel turn on the water because your answer to me 
is that this is going to take even longer to try to get out the dynamics around the border crossing. Um, and even then, I'm not sure why we should have, have to have convoys and convoys of trucks bringing bottled water across when we need to take tents, food, medicine, and other urgent needs. So I look forward to following up with you um, even before you, the confirmation vote uh, to just make sure I understand what your thinking is and what you would do as our ambassador to address all the other issues. And I want to second the things that Senator Murphy and others have said, but this is an immediate humanitarian need. So I look forward to working with you on it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. Uh, Senator, did you have any? Follow-up questions you wanted to ask? I do not. Thank you. I'm glad that you said that. <laughs> uh, Senator Cardin has given a speech on the floor of the Senate on July 27, 2023, regarding the individual Salal al-Din Sultan, uh, who uh, was referred to earlier in the testimony. He's asked that his speech and the attachment be put into the record uh, in this speech, Senator Cardin lays out the, uh, the history and also quotes uh, the letter uh, that Mr. Sultan wrote and that was smuggled uh, out of, of prison in Egypt. And I think it's powerful enough that I'd like to read that clause in which Mr. Sultan wrote, my previous statements and stances are wrong, and the best of us are those who reflect hold oneself accountable and repent. Here I am, reflecting and seeking forgiveness from God for the harm that may have been inflicted upon anyone. I apologize to everyone harmed by what I said and called for. I leave behind these prison walls all forms of anger, hate, and coarseness. I bear the burden of upholding the sanctity of human life, speaking truth and defending it wherever it may be. I had only intended to stand up for justice, but what I did resulted in the exact opposite of the intent became a reason for further oppression, suffering, and marginalization of the innocent. In fact, my oppressors used my decade-old stances to justify and fend off pressure from concerned Western parties about my release. And uh, I encourage anyone who would like to look into this further. This is a, a powerful statement uh, by Chair Cardin and the attachment. If there are no more questions, which there are not, thank you. The record for the hearing will remain open until close of business, Friday, October 20th, 2023. I'd encourage our nominees to answer questions for the record fully and expeditiously so the committee can consider your nominations as soon as possible. Thank you to all nominees for your willingness to serve. I've really appreciated uh, learning more about your, your records and your vision for the future in each of these positions. This hearing is adjourned.